just be able to respect, hold space and say, you know, to each their own, <laughs> you know, you want to do you and this works and that's how you want to, you know, live your, your faith or your values. That's great. You know, it's not my place to, to be judgmental. And that's part of what I'm bringing to the table is that I, I choose not to, I try not to um, have a judgmental lens on, on other people. And so I want to respect even when people have uh, divergent views from me to be able to say, great, you know, that's, you're allowed to, right? The, the country today is so incredibly polarized and it's sort of my way is right. No, my way is right. And can it possibly be that each of you have merit? Welcome to episode 31 of People Are the Answer. I truly believe that people are the only answer to the world's many problems. I'm Jeffrey M. Zucker, a serial entrepreneur, here to learn how innovators are creating outsized, transformational social impact. Today's episode features Rabbi Dr. Ari Sittner, a rabbi, PhD, certified couples therapist, professor, and kidney donor, who currently serves as the Director of Leadership and Community Development at Yeshiva University. Rabbi Sittner is not only an innovator and impact on the world, but he's also someone that has been tremendously impactful in my personal life. I've known him for many years. He officiated my dad's funeral and my wedding. He's been there for me in tough times and happy ones. This is a very personal episode for me that features some vulnerable moments. I don't consider myself religious, but I am Jewish, and Judaism has served an important role in my life as my relationship with it has evolved. Despite not being very religious, it is nice that I'm able to have a wonderful relationship with an Orthodox rabbi who happens to be very warm, welcoming, and open-minded. We could have a whole show on this topic, but I think those basics give important context. Rabbi Sittner and I discuss his career and educational journey, the Gottman method of counseling, what it's like to donate a kidney, visiting sites of national tragedies to help with the grieving process, and much more. Here is Rabbi Dr. Ari Sittner on People Are the Answer. Rabbi Sittner, thank you so much for joining me on People Are the Answer. My pleasure. So happy to be here with you. It's like we were saying before, it's, it's been too long since we've had the chance to communicate face to face. So I'm glad that the podcast can uh, make that happen. It's true. And you know, we all talk about how much the world has changed during COVID, but really even you know, before the idea, like there's certain people that come into your life and you just can connect them the, the deepest way. And suddenly there could be years apart, but when you get back together, it's like you haven't yeah. missed a beat. And that's how I feel just being able to reconnect with you. Yeah, likewise. I mean, certainly my favorite kind of people, and I've been fortunate to have a fair number of those types of relationships. And um, yeah, I feel the same way. So thanks again for agreeing to participate. My pleasure, my honor. And I'll explain a little in the intro as well, but just for some more context for the audience, you know, I've known you since I was very young when you first came to Charleston, and we'll, we'll dig into that history in a bit. And, you know, you were there for me when my dad passed away and officiated his funeral and married my wife and me and um you know I've obviously been a big part of my life and they're in important moments so um you know for me it's an honor to kind of share you as a human with the audience no oh, thank you that really means a lot to me and, and the feeling is mutual right obviously again as i said time 
has has lost all meaning and i i feel like we were just together last at a some happy occasion like as if it were yesterday and we we have traversed a lot together right happy moments sad moments and and that's really what where there's like the deepest of connections with people where you just hold on to each other through all those ups and downs and that's that's kind of what the story of our relationship has always been yeah exactly um and it's it's powerful absolutely so we'll we'll dig into some of some of the history a little bit more later but um if you could just start off by telling us uh who you are where you're based and what your current role is sure so my official title is rabbi doctor Ari Sittner, right? So I'm kind of uh, juggling different hats. And currently my uh, focus is working as a couples therapist. And I'm a a Gottman certified couples therapist, which means I use a really scientific approach to helping couples. um, And it's a tremendous passion of mine. I also am a faculty member, professor of social work at Yeshiva University's Wurzweiler School of Social Work. And I'm based in the New York, New Jersey area. Wonderful. And uh, in life in general, you know, if you could say what motivates you? That is a big question. What motivates me? There have been a lot of influences in my life that, you know, as, as we'll talk about, I'm sure will come up that people that even if they just cross your radar for a short while, but they plant a seed, and something just takes root. And at some point years later in life, you just feel this, this pulling at your soul of, I am here for a purpose. I have something more to accomplish. And one of the things that I'm always wrestling with, and I'm sure my wife would be the first to attest to it, is my, uh, my relationship with time. Because there's X number of hours in the day, and there's always so much to do. And I look at impact. I look at people in the world. I look at those that are hurting and how can I take a few minutes of my day, an hour of my day and allocate that towards enriching somebody else's life. And having been the beneficiary myself of other people who've invested in me, who've helped me in difficult times, it compels me even more to be there for somebody else and say, what's my capacity to help them? And and it just, it, it drives me. It's like this pressure that I feel on a daily basis because there's there's no end to the amount of people who have tears to be wiped, who, who could use a hug or a little bit of a boost. And uh, that's always been a, a part of me from my childhood to sort of be an optimistic, positive person, but at the same time, bringing others close, trying to uh, to connect just on a very, very uh, deeply, profoundly human level. And and so for me, every day, it's sort of like this, this ticking clock, this opportunity to try to make a, an impact and help other people. Beautifully said. And uh, I feel similarly, and um, I'm curious, you know, how your background sort of got you where you were. Uh, where did you grow up, and what was it like there? So I, I, I have definitely taken the scenic route in life. Most of my peers, you know, I, I grew up in, started off in Brooklyn, New York, and a lot of my peers followed a very straight and narrow path. And for me, my family moved a little bit upstate to to Muncie, and as I grew up there, it was a very insular community. Uh, sort of everyone that I knew was very much like me and wasn't a lot of diversity. Um, I went to private schools and I had a wonderful upbringing, but I really didn't get a taste of what the world looked like beyond you know a few locations. You'd, you'd go for a family trip straight from New York to Miami 
and you go from one small Jewish community to another small Jewish community. And again, there's we're missing a lot of stops along the way. And when I was in college is where I met my wife. And within a year of being married, we just picked up and kind of left this bubble. And we moved to Des Moines, Iowa. <laughs> and that was really like a, a major detour uh, to get out and say, we wanted to make an impact. We didn't want to just continue that same trajectory as everyone around us, but to, to really appreciate that there are incredible people and amazing communities. And by stepping out of the bubble, I was able to have an impact. Here in the sort of home base of mine, I was just another face in the crowd. And I, I knew that I had more to offer. And when I was able to, and I was all of 22 years old, uh, when we are 21, when we moved to Iowa, I got married young, moved to Iowa. And next thing I knew, I was this quote unquote leader. And what did I know about leadership? I was barely old enough to legally buy alcohol. And yet I was looked upon as a leader. Uh, and, and that really inspired me to continue to, to grow. And, uh, and from there, the, the next step uh, after five years in Iowa was to land in uh, beautiful Charleston, South Carolina, where again, it was this incredible experience to continue to, to become enriched and to enrich lives of other people. And as you know, I mean, there's, there's so much beauty um, in, in Charleston. And um, after eight years there, we kind of came full circle back to where we started in, in the New York, New Jersey area, but we come with, with so much more of a broader perspective and so many more relationships and connections and so much growth that wouldn't have happened had we just sort of stayed in this straight and narrow path. Yeah. Yeah. It's been quite the journey and um, I appreciate your perspective on it in terms of, you know, loving your community, but, you know, getting shielded from a lot of other things that were out there and um, that the fact that you took the time to kind of go see some other things, I think is, is really, really important to your kind of perspective on the world. Um, and from being in Muncie to then eventually in Des Moines, uh, what was between that, I assume, rabbinical school? Yeah, so interestingly, I was uh, I went I went to um, after graduate high school, spent a year year and a half in Israel, just studying, experiencing the land, and I remember um, finishing up my, my gap year in Israel and, and getting ready to start college. And I said to my mom, you know, I really like this, you know, Jewish studies. And uh, I, I think it would be nice if I, you know, continued down that path and, and just sort of uh, just for fun. And she said to me, this is the time to go to college. You got a career to think about. And I said, no, 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 I, I, I'll, I'll get to my career. I just want to do some more studying. And she said to me, look, if, if you're going to do that, at least get a degree or something to show for it. So just put yourself through rabbinical school so that your time is well spent. And I kind of agreed to get her off my back with absolutely no intention of ever going into the uh, formal practice of uh, rabbinic leadership. And sure enough, I found myself shortly after graduating college, um, engaged to my wife and realizing I don't really have a career, but I do have a rabbinic degree. And knowing that I had to you know, make a living, I said, this is as good of a way as any to, to get started. And it was not at all my plan. And that's part of the story of my life is just pivoting with, you know, whatever comes my way in the moment. It's okay, this is an opportunity. And sure enough, I next thing you know, I was a rabbi. <laughs> and so it wasn't my plan, but it kind of worked out nicely. Yeah, that's, that's good. Great to hear. And um, so you started off in Des Moines. What how would you sort of summarize that experience? How long were you there? So we were there five years. The first 
two years in Des Moines was um, was really focused on uh, participating in a fellowship, a kollel, studying, teaching within the community. And I, I, I tell people, even outside of faith-based communities, I'm sure you see this in the professional world, um, someone who wants to get an edge, um, roll up your sleeves, right? Take an internship, right? Do something that's going to give you experience that'll build a resume. You don't have to get a, a, a big job day one out of college, or even if a person isn't going the co- college route. But by going into a community, by rolling up your sleeves, you will be exposed to experiences to know what you like, what you don't like, what speaks to you, where your strengths are. And for me, that's what those first two years were about. It was really just supposed to be a two-year experience. And just at the time when we were finishing up our second year, uh, my wife and I had an amazing time, um, came with our challenges, of course, growing up around family and suddenly realizing you're in Iowa and you can't just run down the block and visit family and, and feeling a little bit distant. And again, this is back in, we went out there in 1999, right? So communication even, as good as it was, wasn't, was, I, I remember having, we didn't have a cell phone when, when, my, when my wife was pregnant, I had a, I had a beeper at the time so that she could reach me. So it gives you a little bit of frame of reference. But after those two years, it was okay, it was time to go. And at that point, the synagogue, um, which had been a, a beautiful synagogue, um, about 100 years old, their rabbi had just left and they came to me and said, would you be interested in applying for the position? And I kind of looked at them and said, me? I, you know, I'm all of you know, 23 years old and thinking, what am I going to do? I, I don't really, I mean, I've been trained for it, but I never really thought seriously that that's what I would do. And I remember speaking to some of my mentors and they said, look, like, this is what it's about. Go to a place where you have opportunities that you wouldn't otherwise have, right? Think outside the box. And I said, okay, let me, let me give it a try. And I latched on to mentors and, and others that can guide me and help me figure out what I don't know, um, made my mistakes along the way, learned as I went, developed myself, and continued in uh, the course of a three-year span to really grow the, the size of the membership, the uh, engagement with the community, the education, developed myself. Uh, and, and it was because of that growth, I also um, went back to school at that point and pursued a master's in education. So I was continuing to use that opportunity to develop, not really certain what was next on the horizon, but again, that that theme of trying to maximize what I can accomplish in this moment. Um, and that was both in terms of my personal growth as well as uh, growth vis-a-vis the community. Okay. Sounds like it was a, a really impactful experience and one that just, you sort of found yourself in and those can often be the ones you learn the most from. Absolutely. And it's not something I ever in a million years would have thought that, yes, I'm going to leave Muncie and end up in Iowa. Um, as a matter of fact, when we first heard about the the uh, opportunity to move to Iowa, um, again, in the days before Google Maps, my wife and I actually opened an atlas and said, hang on a second, where in the world is Iowa? Right? We were that New York centric. And it was, it was just amazing just to kind of... Um, find a pace of life where people were friendly, people were calm. They were, there was a certain um, just really easy pace of life, which we continued to enjoy when we moved to Charleston as well. Coming back here to the New York area, it's, you know, you, you can spend an hour driving a 15 minute drive because you're sitting in traffic the whole time, right? That's a really aggressive, intense way to live. And there are tremendous advantages here as well, but everything in life, we've got the, the, uh, the trade-off. 
So after learning at the synagogue in Iowa and, you know, sort of developing your starting to develop at least your, your leadership of a congregation, what took you to Charleston and to uh, Bris Shalom Beth Israel? Yeah, so we were at a point where we had two young children at the time. And it, which is funny to think, you know, our kids go through life and they're, they're Iowans. And for us, that was a stop along the way. For them, that will always be their birthplace. And, and you know, we look back very fondly at that. But one of the things that we really valued was being able to provide our children with a, a strong sense of identity in their heritage, their culture, to feel that they are um, coming from a really rich Jewish uh, legacy and wanting them to be able to identify, to have a literacy. And one of the limitations in the, uh, the community in Des Moines at the time was the, uh, the Jewish day school. And we really wanted to make sure that they were poised to be in a school that um, could really allow them to go all the way through eighth grade. And when we, uh, while Iowa didn't necessarily offer that at the time, Charleston right, had an incredible Jewish day school. And we said, you know, if we have to move because we believe that that strongly in giving our children the advantages to form that that sense of identity that you know our parents gave to us, then Charleston would be an ideal place to do that. And we were so excited you know, when we first interviewed and we checked it out. We, we just fell in love with it right away. Yeah. Well, I'm obviously very glad that you made it there. And I'll note, you know, that I went to that grade school, Adelston Hebrew Academy, for preschool through fifth grade. Um, it's a it's a great experience, and even. You know, I think we obviously it was an Orthodox style school, but um, we had people of all types of Judaism within our classes. And um, we, we even had, you know, some non-Jewish people as well. And I think that regardless of people's level of religiosity, if you will, like, I think that it was it's really important to learn everything and learn about the heritage. Like I I was having a conversation with a friend the other day that, um, you know, he, he didn't go to Jewish day school, but, you know, still, uh, so he doesn't know as much, but he very much relates to his Judaism. And, um, I was just saying, I mean, I feel very versed from my time at Adelston, um, you know, like regardless of my level of observance, I generally know the answers and it makes me feel like I'm a good representative of the Jewish people in society. Um, you know, some people may or may not like, religious schools, but I'm really glad I got my time at Adelstone and I'm glad that we had that resource uh, for your children and glad that people like my brother and many others have worked to, to build that school up and replace the infrastructure, et cetera, and glad to see it in a good place. And it's, it, we can't take for granted that the fact that I was able to just just drop into that community and there was this infrastructure, right? All of the things that I was looking for. Yeah. Somebody else came before me, right? How many other leaders and, and philanthropists and, and board members and volunteers rolled up their sleeves in order to, to be able to create that. And as you pointed out or continuing, you know, here we are years later and developing it and improving upon it and, you know, giving the next generation of, of children in that community. Again, it's, it's a smaller Jewish community, but there's such a strength. There's such a pride. And that's the idea of it is I, I, when I was raised going to a Jewish school, I had no intention of growing up to become a rabbi, but I was given the opportunity. Had I not gotten that education, then I would have been limited. And to be able to say to every child, like, 
here are the basics, right? And now you can go choose to live however you want, but at least you have opportunities and to speak the language and to feel good about, you know, who you are, where you come from, to know the stories of your your parents, your grandparents, your great grandparents, which are important stories, right? You know, you, both you and I come from, uh, you know, as grandchildren of Holocaust survivors, right? The stories we tell about how lucky we are to be here and, and really nothing short of, of miracles that 6 million of our relatives died. And yet we somehow are here, right? Because our families were on the run and escaped and hid and did all sorts of crazy things. I want my children telling those stories, the stories that you and I grew up hearing. A hundred percent. I feel the same. And they've come up on this podcast before, just, you know, it was my grandparents, their fortitude to stay alive. You know, you know, a lot of the stories like my grandmother Rose that had guns to her head multiple times among many other insane stories. And just, yeah, that we come from survivors. Um, and it's so important that we do justice to that. And like you said, to teach our children that, um, and so while, you know, there's certainly some people that probably that, especially that aren't religious, that don't understand the value that can be had from religious education. But I think especially um, amongst Jews, um, there aren't a ton of opportunities to get deeply connected unless you really search them out. So putting, just giving your kids that exposure, I think goes a long way. Absolutely. And, and one of the many, many things that I love about you, about your family, about the, the legacy that, that the Zucker family really, really shines into the world is kind of bridging that gap between the, the old world and the new world to be able to take um, the history of, yeah, where we come from. We are survivors. We are fighters. And, and that's something that we, we can't um, take for granted because thinking of the sacrifice that others have made so that I can be here, how do I take that and merge that with the lives of my children who are just as happy sitting and playing Call of Duty half the day, um, but to, to be able to bring that into their world in 2022, to be able to merge um, technology and, and science and education, sort of bring that all together so that they can be proud of both an American Jewish identity, those two worlds, um, and hold space for both of those because they're so important. There's so much that each of those traditions, each of those identities um, can bring into to the lives of, of impacting so many others around them. Yeah. Yeah, certainly. And um, so, you know, back to where we were, I'm really glad that opportunity was available. So you ended up moving to Charleston um, and you joined at, I don't know the order. I know you worked at BSBI and Adelstone. Is that right? Yes, I was uh, very much full-time um, jug juggling both. Um, I had the great privilege of, uh, of teaching every day in, in Adelstone, um, which coordinated nicely with my carpool schedule. So I'd be running around you know, teaching and doing all sorts of responsibilities for the synagogue and then head over to the school, teach, and then get the opportunity to see my kids, which was always fun and you know, bring them home and spend time with them and uh, do homework. And it was just, again, the pace of life was, was really beautiful that I was able to find as, as intense and immersive as it is to, to be a, a synagogue rabbi, to be a faith leader where you're sort of on call 24 seven. And there are hundreds of people that are relying on you for so many different responsibilities. I still was able to carve out time to, to make my family a priority. And, and that's not something that, uh, that could be taken for granted. Looking back, you know, you were in Charleston for how many years? Eight years. 
Okay, that's what, that's what I thought. And so looking back at your time in Charleston, you know, how do you feel that it now, you know, how do you feel that it sort of affected the next steps of your life and sort of where you are now? Oh, that's a great question. It, it really was a tremendous stepping stone for us. Um, interestingly, when um, Fast forwarding for a moment here, you know, after Charleston, I worked in Yeshiva University where I was helping um, young rabbinic students um, on on their own trajectories and their development, um, amongst many other responsibilities. And one of the things that I would say to them was, you know, roll up your sleeves, go to a smaller community and, and grow with the community. Let them help you grow. And that was my experience in Charleston is that this beautiful established community, they helped me grow. And so when I say to a, a young student, hey, you know, maybe you would go to a place like Charleston, they look at it as coming from the enriched community of New York, where, you know, there's so much Jewish infrastructure, they look at that as a step down. And for me, having gone to Iowa, Charleston was a tremendous step up. And it was it was such a treat. And I, I appreciated it. I appreciated it. not that the limitations, right, you can look at it and say, well, how many kosher restaurants are there, right? There was there was one. And that was amazing for me because in Iowa, we didn't have any. And so I looked at the amenities of the community as as a plus. I saw the glasses half full. Um, during that time, I developed beautiful relationships with so many people. Um, and I and I learned there were again, I, I learned um, from people, you know, sitting. I remember one time there was a, uh, a, a very special lady. She was a widow in her maybe mid 90s. And I called her up one time and I said, um, has anyone asked you on a date lately? And she says, no, it's been many, many, many years. And she, she smiled. And I said, can I ask you out on a date? <laughs> and she invited me to her home for tea. And we just sat for hours and she talked about you know, her, her husband and her children and her parents. And for me, it was, it was so eye-opening to be able to enter the world, the life of somebody else and learn from that person and take their story with me and she's no longer with us, but I, I carry the, those memories. And I just remember the smile on her face, right? When, when we kind of joked about us having our date together and how much that meant to her because she, she didn't get a lot of visitors. And um, it, just, it just was a way to leave an impression on a person in such a small way that made her feel so wonderful, right? And that's an example of, of the relationships, the growth um, that I felt in Charleston. I think going back to my my feeling, my struggle about time, always not, not ever being enough hours in the day and so much to do, that was, that was a really big pressure, right? Because there was just an endless amount of, of work and, um, and we had, you know, really great volunteers and lay leaders and, and staff and people that we could, we could rely on. But at the end of the day, there was always more and more and more work to be done. Uh, and it's hard to go to sleep at the end of the day knowing that you're not, you know, there are more people to visit. There are more classes to be taught. There's more uh, outreach to be done. And you can only look at what you're able to do and accept, accept that limitation. Um, and so that was something that I struggled with. I really struggled with because I, I wanted to do more, but it really wasn't about me. That was one of the things I had to learn was this is about the community and the community is much bigger than me, right? And how do, how do we engage other people? How do we bring others into the conversation? How do we um, do outreach and, and, be able to inspire people who aren't necessarily a, a part of the fold and at the same time um, be able to take those people who have been there for years, who've invested, who've, who've really put their heart and soul and their money into growing the community 
um, and, and making sure that we're also honoring and validating what they're putting into it and sort of like trying to, to walk um, a very tight rope um, at, at the same time, honoring very, very different demographics. And, and even within that older and younger and more affiliated and less affiliated. Um, and so again, it's, it's sort of a mission impossible, if you will. And, um, and yet you, you learn on the job. So definitely a learning curve, but something that I, uh, I have a tremendous amount of gratitude for. Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, I'm certainly glad you were there and then was very sad when you left, but understood. And so uh, what ended up taking you back up north? So we were at the point where um, sort of what brought us to Charleston initially was in, in search of uh, a community that would offer our children what they needed. Um, and at the time, our, our oldest son was just entering uh, seventh grade and Charleston did not have uh, a Jewish high school, which was something we really wanted to have for our kids. And, and I really have so much respect for um, a, a lot of the families that would make a tremendous um, sacrifice where they would often send their you know, 13, 14 year old child to another community to go live with another family and, and um, have them attend a Jewish school in maybe Atlanta or New York or, or somewhere else. And I always, again, I have so much respect and I always said, you have to know your child if that's the right thing for your child. And I just, my wife and I really did some soul searching and realized that the, the needs of our children, and that's something that's really important to in, individuate, you know, as a parent for per the needs of each child. Um, and we said, you know, it's really going to be best for our children to, to live at home. And if, again, we have to relocate to give them those educational opportunities, and that's something that we would be prepared to do. And so we kind of then um, closed that, that Charleston chapter and moved uh, moved to New Jersey, which was uh, the next step in our, our roundabout uh, journey. Got it. Well, that is certainly understandable. And I can really appreciate that you didn't just send them off without really considering who they are as individuals. I think that that's really important. Right. And and even, even having landed here, um, I, I think in this next chapter of my story, where we're in this... Um, incredibly enriched Jewish community. So coming from a, a beautiful community that had, you know, one kosher restaurant to now within a mile of my house, I have probably about 30, right? Which is wow, unbelievable. And, you know, from, from kosher sushi to Chinese to kosher pizza and, and uh, fine dining. And um, it, it's, it's incredible. Um, of course, I find myself as a Jew just sitting and talking about food here, but let me take the conversation oh, back to other things. <laughs> hey, food um, puts things in perspective for everyone. Every, everyone gets food. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, and, but, but that's something, again, in terms of the, the sacrifice in Charleston, which we didn't feel that it was a sacrifice right? because we, we were just so immersed in, in our lives in the community. Uh, but you couldn't just run out and say, oh, I'm just going to go grab some sushi because there wasn't a kosher sushi restaurant. And, um, and interestingly... My incredible wife, Hannah, learned sort of uh, by just doing. She made her own sushi and her own pizzas and uh, became a real foodie uh, just by, again, having to grow by necessity. And, you know, we really had some really great culinary experiences just around our own dining room table. And we were excited to always share that with other people and would constantly be inviting guests and have, just having you know, a wonderful time um, with other people. But even when we moved here and we have all these great uh amenities and experiences and, and enriched Jewish opportunities, 
it it's still so easy to miss the mark on that individuation, right? Of how you need to focus on the the different needs of each child, because you know, whereas in Charleston there was one school, there was no option of saying, okay, should I explore this Jewish school versus that Jewish school? Again, within several miles of where I live, there are probably half a dozen Jewish wow. schools. Each one, let's say they're you know K through eight, each one has probably somewhere around a thousand students in each. So you think wow. about how significant that is. It's a whole and different world. Unbelievable, right? So now suddenly I have all these options and it's so easy to fall into the trap of saying, well, I'll just send my kids all to, to one school that I like, but that doesn't mean that I'm really doing justice. And that's something that we learned along the way that yes, they're getting a much more enriched in, in, you know, experience educationally in terms of, of their, their identity and their core Jewish values, is that mean that from a developmental, a social, a mental health perspective, that they're really receiving everything they need? And that was really a tremendous part of the growth over the last 10 years that my wife and I have gone through is kind of learning the, the hard way to roll with the challenges that your children go through. Um, and as you can imagine, being this you know sweet Southern kid who now comes up to, to New York um, you know, New Jersey, this really different culture. Uh, it was an adjustment. I remember my, my son came home the first day of school in seventh grade and we said, how was it? He said, it was terrible. Why? What happened? He said, I don't know. My teacher asked me a question and I said, yes, ma'am. And she called me out of class and said, don't you talk to me that way. She thought he was being disrespectful and sassy because in the history of the school, no kid has ever said, yes, ma'am. And he thought he, he, she thought he was bringing sass and we had to explain to her, no, it's called being polite. He was being respectful. <laughs> and that was such a cultural shift that it was like, no, don't come down on the kid. You should praise him for it. And, you know, as a parent, and, and I'm sure this is something that, you know, you and Jess are going to experience, that you have to allow your children to kind of rise and fall and, and make their mistakes and develop resilience by by you know, kind of getting the bruises along the way. And as a parent, you just so badly want to swoop in and, and protect them and rescue them from everything. Um, and I used to do that all the time because I just, I'm, I just, I just want, I love my kids so much and I don't want anything bad to happen to them. And I just, and yet doing that really, I learned really prevents them from being able to develop their own sense of, of resilience of how to go through life and take your bruises and keep on going because the world isn't going to always be fair to you, whether it's in, in school and in, in marriage in professional life, we're all going to kind of hit those bumps. And, um, resilience is just something that today, um, I think is, is fading more and more. Um, and, and I think it's so critical from a, a, a mental health development perspective that children be given the opportunity to be supported through their challenges, not to be protected from them. And there's like a really fine line. Uh, between those two. Yeah, that's, it's really, it means a lot to hear these perspectives from you. And especially as, you know, a parent of a two-year-old, um, I'm excited for the many things we'll learn along the way. I'm certainly will be bumps and, you know, being sweet, innocent two-year-old that doesn't go out in the world alone that much, you know, it's, it's scary to think of how much the world is going to directly affect him and things that I can't be a part of, but, but I know that's just part of life. You know, he's got to learn. Right. Right. And, and I, I think that, you know, another lesson that I learned along the way, and again, I, 
I would try to extract from the those that I encountered throughout my travels to extract something of value that I can take with me. Like I would, you know, um, be at a you know traditional Shabbat meal with with somebody else, and it could have been a family who's really you know marginally affiliated with the Jewish community, and I would watch how they interacted with their children, and while I was saying rituals and prayers and blessings on Friday night to, to my children. They didn't know how to say all those Hebrew words. So all they would do is would hug, they would hug their children and they would tell them, like whisper in their ears, little secrets of things I love about you. And yeah. I was like, man, forget all these Hebrew words. Let me tell my kids something that they will take with them. And I started incorporating both where I would kind of do the traditions, but also learned from someone else like, hey, that's a beautiful thing. Let me just, and every, still to this day, you know, 20 plus years of doing it, I, every Friday night will whisper a secret into the ears of my children about something I'm proud of or something that I love about them. That's amazing to hear. And, you know, you are obviously very open-minded and um, sort of absorb the things that you see in the world. In my experience, not every Orthodox rabbi is like that. Um, you know, what, how do you feel about sort of certain communities being more closed-minded or certain leaders and kind of the diverse society that we're living in today and, and how those things go together or that's what a, they need to do. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. So I'll answer it this way. On the one hand, I think it's really important to be able to just be able to respect, hold space and say, you know, to each their own, you know, you want to do you and this works and that's how you want to, you know, live your, your faith or your values. That's great. You know, it's not my place to, to be judgmental. And that's part of what I'm bringing to the table is that I, I choose not to, I try not to um, have a judgmental lens on, on other people. And so I want to respect even when people have uh, divergent views for me to be able to say, great. You know, that's, you're allowed to, right? The, the country today is so incredibly polarized and it's sort of, my way is right. No, my way is right. And can it possibly be that each of you have merit and there's value to what both sides are saying? Yeah. Um, and so I think, I think as, a, as a society, we've lost some of the, that, that human aspect of being able to just appreciate that these are people. Right? They have thoughts, they have feelings, they have traumas, they have histories, they have stories. And if this is how they want to live their life, whether it's a, a social issue, a political issue, a religious issue, okay, great, right. do you, that's, that's fine. And I, I really want to just promote that idea within you know, my, my family, within the, the students that I, that I teach. When I train social work students, you can imagine that some of them are coming to the table with very uh, specific views about what they deem right and wrong in society. And to really be an effective social worker, you have to have a very open mind. And so I'm constantly challenging them to think about, are you guiding your clients based on your own values? Are you trying to brainwash them and get them to, to live like you? Or can you respect that this is not your life to guide? This is their life. And to really support the, the, the self-determination, the autonomy of other people to, to live their best life as they see fit. And at the same time, I think that we, we can look at the other side um, and, and recognize that it's unfortunate when people are closed-minded, right? So on the one hand, yes, there's benefit to saying, hey, you have your values and this works for you. But on the other hand, right, 
it's it's sometimes hurtful. It's, it feels standoffish. It feels closed-minded when, you know, I, I don't have a dog in the fight. I'm not looking for a fight. I want to be kind and loving and open to everyone. And yet someone else comes across as, you know, my way is right. And I'm and, and again, that could be politically, socially, religiously. Um, and it could be in, in all different walks of life. Um, I, I get that people are passionate. They're passionate about their politics or their religious views. And again, for me, that that's okay that you're passionate. And if if their closed-mindedness is how they choose to to demonstrate that, well, then I just may take a step back and say, that's great, more power to you, but it's not for me. Yeah. And should they choose to open their heart, to open their homes, to open their arms and say, hey, we'd love for you to you know, get a taste of who we are, then beautiful, invite me in, right? Allow me to be a part of that. And and I would welcome the opportunity to to kind of cross that bridge and, and get to know the lives of other people. Because as I said, I'm happy to learn from everyone. I'm happy to extract what I can. Um, and I think yeah. closed-mindedness just puts up too many walls. Yeah, I mean, important messages for our society as a whole. It's it's obviously, in a lot of respects, become a divisive place. But I, I similarly am of the mindset of let people live their life the way they want, they want, as long as they're not hurting other people and be open-minded. And uh, something that I've said quite a bit lately on the show is that uh, I believe that we're all on team humanity. You know, we, we should be all about human rights and people being happy and living a benef- mutually beneficial life that makes them happy. You know, it's so, um, I, I really appreciate your perspective on that. Right. I, thank you. And and one of the, the other inherent challenges in having that, that beautiful, open way of thinking that you and I share is that we also want to be warriors and advocates for uh, for opportunities to, to improve the world around us. And so to simply say, let everybody do what they want to do is, is really great, but it also will create a system where people are falling through the cracks, where there are injustices right. and there are right. too many people or vulnerable populations that, that do need um, advocacy and support. And so on the one hand, I want to be able to say, hey, this is your community. It's not my place to come in and tell you what you should or shouldn't do or how to change. On the other hand, if there are certain vulnerabilities and I can help be a part of a solution, right? how could yeah. we how could we be collaborative? In other words, it's a respectful thing. It's not paternalistic. I'm not coming in and telling you what to do. But I want to work hand in hand to figure out without stepping on toes, how, how can we together try to solve an, a, a problem and make things better for the community or for the world around us? Yeah, it's a very important point that uh, I'm glad you added, you know, not just living how they'll live, but also taking care of, of the people around you in need in the community and ensuring everyone has the opportunity to do that. You know, that's one thing about our society today is that uh, you know, I've been torn on in terms of politically, like libertarian views versus liberal views, etc. But the bottom line to me is I think our society can probably afford to help everyone survive in some capacity to where they there aren't people waking up every day having to focus on survival and instead can focus on things that could enrich the lives of their own lives and others' lives. Um, so it's hopefully more and more will begin supporting people. Absolutely. And I, I love your idea of, of sort of thinking of it as a humanitarian cause, which is, you know, it, it is all about people. Yeah, exactly. People are the answer. <laughs> um, so, you know, throughout your career, you know, it seems like you've been getting degrees and going back to school in addition to teaching. So 
could you just kind of sum up your experience through schooling and um, how important school was to you? Yeah, so I would say on, on sort of two levels. Um, number one, the the education that I received, I'm very fortunate. Um, education is such a key component to being able to have um, have the capacity to do what you do and do it well, right? And it, it doesn't mean that every person is cut out for formal education to go through college and to go through graduate school. For some, that's perfect. For others, there are different ways to learn. But having the, the confidence that comes along with um, picking up skills as you, as you grow, as well as the credentials, the credentials are going to help you kind of build the resume that you need. So for me, it was stepping stones. It was my you know, bachelor's degree in psychology. When I graduated, I'm like, what am I going to do with a bachelor's in psychology? You can't really do anything. Uh, but that enabled me to combine that with my rabbinic degree and say, well, okay, well, you know, I have a college education and a rabbinic degree, so I was able to get that job in Iowa. And then while I was in Iowa, I pursued the master's in education. Well, rabbinic degree plus a master's, well, that was, you know, worthy of getting a job in Charleston. And then, you know, with that, to be able to uh, continue to develop a, a resume that enabled me to transition to the, the New Jersey area where I was able to work for Yeshiva University. And it was there that I went back to school to pursue a master's in social work and then went on for a PhD. And both of those experiences enabled me to, again, continue to develop my skills, continue to, to develop my um, my credentials. Uh, and I think at a certain point, it's like, okay, like <laughs> stop going to school and just continue to get out there and, and do what you want to do. And, and I'm, I'm, I feel very blessed because I'm so passionate about the work that I'm doing, um, about the education that I received. And I always encourage people, like you don't have to get every single uh, degree and credential and certification out there. Just start off, use it, put it to work, grow. And then over time, you can always take that that next stepping stone. And that at least is what, what worked for me. Um, and having gone through that and being able to, you know, I never in a million years would have thought that I would be a, a, a doctor or PhD of anything. Um, of course, my, my Jewish mother was very happy to say my son, the doctor, uh, yeah. she, she waited a lot of years for that, but it was, it was, um, it was something I never thought that I had the, the ability to, it was sort of like, I'm not smart enough. Um, and, and just really like a lot of imposter syndrome. Like I, I can't do that. Right. And at each stage just kept putting one foot in front of the other, one foot in front of the other, and eventually found myself you know, advancing through the program. And, and even though I was doubting myself and when I completed it, I was like, wow, I, I can't believe I actually was able to do this. And then, you know, started becoming an adjunct professor. And so first I was a student in those same classrooms. And before long, I was, I was actually teaching other students and then became full-time faculty. So uh, the, those are all opportunities that I would not have been able to achieve if not for the, for the gift of the education that I was yeah. able to pick up along the way. Yeah, it's, it sounds like you put it to unique use, I feel like, you know, not everybody uses like the stepping stone way like that. Some people are in a rush and uh, it sounds like it worked well for you. It did. I'm, I'm always in a rush just because I'm, again, that, that thing with time, I'm always going. So yeah. even when I, um, you know, when I did my, uh, my, my initial uh, bachelor's in psychology, um, I, I did about three years of college in about a year and a half right? Just wow. by doing summers and winters and nights and just 
go, go, go. And, you know, same thing with my, my PhD. It was, you know, most people who are working full time, in addition to doing a PhD, they might spend many years doing it. And I just, you know, in a, like a three-year window, I just said, I'm just going to go, go, go. And I'd get up at, you know, 4.35 o'clock in the morning every day and just sit on my computer and write for an hour or two. Um, and, and just keep doing that, right? <laughs> Wash, rinse, repeat. Just follow that same same pattern every single day. And before long, it's like, wow, I got a dissertation. Wow. And so uh, one one step uh, in front of the other. That's that's how I do it. So you spent that time doing academic writing, and you, but you've also written a book, The Kidney Donor's Journey. Um, so I'd love to hear more about what led you to become a kidney donor and what led you to write the book. Thank you. So it, that that was another uh, incredible and unexpected kind of twist and turn in my in my story. So in um, maybe about eleven years ago, um, in Charleston, I I was trying to come up with innovative classes that would have a a broad appeal, and I decided I'll do a series on medical ethics. Not that I really knew a lot about medical ethics, but I thought that that would be a, an interesting topic, and so I. Just put my head down one foot in front of the other and just studied and researched and uh, was able to put together some really cool classes, things like, you know, stem cell research and cloning and sort of, you know, what does an ancient Jewish religion have to say about stem cell research? And it was, you know, it was a very big issue in, uh, in the news at the time. And one of the uh, topics they talked about was organ donation. And I found myself researching it and realizing, wow, that's pretty cool. A person could cut out a piece of their body, give it to another person who's dying, that person could now be saved and live, and you will go about living a normal, healthy life. That just It just blew my mind. And, and in some ways, I think I may have oversimplified it, but that's really what it came down to. And I kind of thought of it um, in terms of if, if you saw a person who was drowning and they're screaming and like, would, would you look away? Like, how could you look away? And I just realized, like, there are, you know, about 90 to 100,000 people just in the United States who are waiting for a kidney donation. And, you know, if, if I had the opportunity to take a piece of me, which I honestly, I didn't do anything special to get it. I was born. It was there. It's not like I, I worked hard and I earned it. It's there. It was a gift. It was a freebie. I have two. I only need one. And if, if I'm holding on to it, like if, I, if I'm, you know, I don't know, in, in a boat and I'm holding on to my life preserver and I have a second one and someone's drowning, how could I not throw it to another person? I'm just going to hold on to it, live my life, and eventually die and be buried and be buried with two kidneys. And yet somebody else could have lived their life. I could not get that idea out of my head. And for months and months, I just sort of wrestled with, Ari, are you crazy? Like, you can't give a kidney stop it you have a family you have a wife you have kids like you have a job like no and every time i would like research and google it and kind of like get a little bit freaked out from just learning about surgery and i, I would shut my laptop and then come back to it and just say like but i don't know maybe and eventually sat down with hannah we went out to starbucks and uh we just talked about it and she was really um she was supportive of the journey. She said, you know, I, I see you're wrestling with this. Don't don't worry about trying to make a decision. Why don't you just go through the testing process? And if you get disqualified, you can say, all right, I tried. 
And if you get approved, we could then talk about it at that point. It was brilliant. It was exactly what I needed to hear and what I encourage other people to do as well. Don't don't try to make a monumental decision. That's It's just you're biting off more than you can chew. And so I... Um, and I didn't even know anyone that needed a kidney. So it's not like I got a knock on the door. Sometimes people say, hey, I have a relative or a friend, and would you consider getting tested? So, you know, getting tested, it doesn't, you know, no skin off my back. I'm happy to just go through that process. And um, I went through the whole testing process. And it was great because I, I, I didn't have to, you know, pay anything. It was all covered by uh, the, the, the program at the hospital. Um, screens you and you get what they call the million dollar workup. I said, great, maybe I'll find something else wrong with me that I didn't know about. I go through the battery of testing and on the other end of it, they're like, hey, you're in really good shape and you know, you'd be a great candidate. And I said, wait, what? <laughs> it was, I, thought wow. I'd hear, I thought I'd hear no. I thought my decision would be made for me. So that became the point in which we really had to start thinking seriously about like, is this something I would do? And you know, I, I, and I wasn't rushing. One of the things I had to to come to terms with is that it's not like there's a patient on the table connected to a machine who's just waiting right now. With kidneys, people are home. They're maybe on dialysis, maybe not. And um, you as, a, as a, a donor have to feel really 100% confident with your decision. You can't be pressured. You can't be coerced. Um, it has to just be completely altruistic, completely from the goodness of your heart, no strings attached. And I really needed to get to that point where I felt comfortable. Like, is this something I can really just do? And, and we spent months and months just sitting with it, thinking about it until eventually, um, you know, my wife and I came to the point where we said, you know, it's kind of seeming like maybe we, we should do this. And this was a we decision. Um, but she said, we got to talk to the kids because if the kids aren't on board, then like, you know, it, it's a no-go because you know, at the end of the day, you're putting yourself through, through a risky surgery. Um, statistically, the risk is, you know, the, the same as let's say a mother going through childbirth, you know, going to the hospital, and having a baby. Right. And so, yeah, for, for giving life, people are willing to put themselves in a little bit of risk. Uh, and so again, it goes back to that compelling feeling inside of wanting to make an impact, knowing I can save somebody. So we sat down at the dinner table with our kids and our, our, two older children at the time. We had uh, the two older ones, then the two younger ones, the twins. Um, and we just started a conversation about like, you know, it's amazing how God gives us these bodies and we can save people. And, you know, thinking about maybe doing that. And my kids got really nervous and they were like, wait, no, 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 don't, don't do this. This sounds really scary. And then my, you know, my older child asked me like, you know, if you gave your kidney, who, who would you give it to? It's a really good question. He was thinking. And I said, well, I, you know, I spoke to the hospital. Uh, there's hospitals paired up with in New York that said that they had a, uh, a woman from Israel who was a, a single mother with three children. Um, I didn't know anything about her, but I just knew that she was a single mom. She's got three kids. She herself lost her mother to the same kidney disease when she was only mm -hmm. 14 years old. And so she knows what it's like to be a kid and losing a mom. And here she is a single mother. And, you know, I just, I shared that with my kids. So I don't really know anything about her. And my, my son said something so profound and I'll never forget it. He said to me, you know, if, if you don't give your kidney to this woman, right, that means she could die. Of course, we don't want anything to ever happen to you either because surgery is dangerous. But if anything happened to you, 
at least we have mommy to take care of us, who loves us and she'll raise us and we'll be in good hands. But for her, if she dies, her children are going to be orphans. And for that reason, you should give her your kidney. And I was blown away by that. Wow. I was so touched. And it was like the, the, it was like the missing piece that we needed to hear. And to just know again, there, you know, there we are in, in Charleston, raising our ch children in Adelson Hebrew Academy, getting, you know, strong Jewish values and being compassionate. And here you have a child saying, I'm, I don't want to, but I'd be willing to lose my father if it meant being able to prevent another child from becoming an orphan. Right. And that's such a complicated and, and mature feeling to access. And, uh, and from that point on, we just moved full steam ahead with the, uh, with the process. And uh, they asked me when I, I went up to New York for the surgery, they said, do you want to meet her? Ronit was her name. And I was like, yeah, I'd love to. And uh, I got to meet her for the first time and she just broke down crying. And it was such a connection. And was the meeting before or after the transplant? So that was just right before when we were coming in for the uh, the final testing. Okay. And um, and they said it's it's up to you. Some people you know choose not to want to meet. And and I said I'm, I'm I'm happy to. I'm a very friendly guy. I'm happy to to meet her. And she was just the most positive, smiley, kind, loving person. And I was just so tickled by that because you know I I wasn't. I'm not here to, to like to judge and say, okay, you know, do, do you pass the test or not? Are you nice enough to get my kidney? It was a decision I made that I'm, I'm going to give it. And yet um, it just turned out that she was someone who's just so remarkable. And she herself had, um, uh, since she got the kidney, she had um, put herself through law school, graduated, opened a practice. Um, her oldest child got married. She just recently um, became a grandmother. Right. Wow. All this in the last in the last decade, um, and it's life that she wouldn't have had, and I I feel like I'm I'm a part of that. In fact, when her daughter got married, she sent me a ticket and said, "You're coming to Israel for this wedding, or we're not having it." It wasn't a question; <laughs> it was you're coming. You know, I wouldn't be here without you. And I I, I flew to Israel, and uh, I walked into that wedding, and hundreds of people came up to me, strangers, and they just started hugging me and crying on my shoulder, and I, I had no idea what was happening, and they're like you don't know what you gave us. And I didn't know who these people are. And they were all describing how their world would have been empty if, if they would have lost Ronit. Oh, and it just made me realize like the ripples of one act that I thought I was just doing in New York for, for a stranger and here are hundreds of people and, and people who grew up with her. And I met her, her, her grandmother and her sisters and, wow. and, and they called me up during the wedding to save one of the prayers and the entire room stood up and started clapping. And I was so embarrassed and it was beautiful. One topic that came up recently when I was discussing criminal justice reform um, is that every single person in the system is a human with, a, with people that care about them. And um, they're, I forget, I feel bad at the moment. I'm just blanking on which guest I was talking to, but, or maybe it was not even on the show. Uh, maybe it was a phone call, but just, someone that was fighting for someone on death row that didn't belong there. And this petition, they put so much time and energy and passion into barely even got looked at by the attorney general um, of Texas at the time. And it just shows how to some people, if they're not seeing it, it's just numbers on paper. And um, I think your experience with Ronit and her loved ones is just encompassing in terms of what one decision, one 
lending a hand to one person, you know, how many lives it can really affect. Yeah. And that absolutely. And that was so eye opening for me. Cause so, like you said, so often we just sort of look at the, the immediate impact and we, we don't think about how many other lives could be touched by, by helping, by saving, by just doing something positive for one person. I mean, it's such a selfless decision that you made and, um, I think it's incredible. And I mean, it was a wonder that it ended up being Ronit and, and her family, but, um, and then, you know, at what point did you decide I'm going to write a book about this experience? So I was actually very, um, private about this because it felt, it felt kind of personal. Obviously, you know, when you're, a, a I was still a, a rabbi of a congregation at the time. So it's hard to keep a secret like that, you know, in a, a small town. So everyone knew and everyone found out and, um, I had, you know, a hundred like, Jewish mothers in the community who were all worried about me and telling me that they thought I was nuts and, and everyone was being supportive and kind. And, um, but I didn't, I didn't want to like talk about it because I, I, I kind of felt like it was bragging, like I'm tooting my own horn Yeah. and, you know, a year went by, two years went by. And I just remember having this feeling like, again, just picturing the drowning person and wanting to to do more. It's like, okay, Ari, you gave your kidney. Stop. There's nothing else you can do. You can't give your other one. You, you need to keep it. So, but the person is still drowning. There's more people. There's more people. And that was when I, I felt compelled to say, what can I do that might be able to save the lives of other people? And so I decided to take my story and to kind of get over myself in terms of, of wanting to stay private about it and realize that if you could save one more life, Right, it, it's worth you know putting it out there, and so I, I wrote the book, the kidney donor's journey, and it's a hundred questions that I asked before donating my kidney, and I, I framed it as a, a question answer because I, I don't want it to be, you know, here I'm telling you to go donate a kidney. Instead, it's, you know, mm. here are a million, you know, I don't know, but hundred reasons why you shouldn't, and how I wrestled with each and every question and had to reconcile. You know, what happens if this, what happens if I need it in the future? What if my kid needs it? How is it going to feel? Am I going to be, is it going to hurt? What's the pain going to be like? And what's the recovery? And all these questions that I just needed to, to work through. And um, it was really amazing that when, when um, you know, I published the book, I, I would start getting letters and emails from total strangers who I was gonna would ask just say, that. yeah, oh my gosh, I, I, I just want to let you know, I just donated to my sister, to my cousin, to my neighbor, and I wasn't going to do it. And your book just gave me the confidence I needed to feel like somebody else was with me. And, and, I, and I did it. And I just wanted to say thank you. And they'd send me pictures of like, here's me and my recipient in the recovery room together holding hands and thank you. And I was just so moved by that because that was the whole point. I don't, I don't need to sell a million copies. I just need to be able to get it into the hands of those people who are were in the same place that I was, right? Thinking about should I, can I, what's involved? And um, and just being able to join them on that journey so that they could do their own exploration and, and for some where it's going to help them cross that finish line is such a rewarding, um, rewarding feeling. And I, again, I think about all those mornings where again, you know, I'd get up at four or five in the morning and I would just write for, you know, two hours every day before I'd start my day. And, and that was sleep that I needed. But I, again, I would lay in bed saying like, how could I not get up early? Like, do I want to take three years to write this book? People are dying. People are drowning. Like you can do something about this. And I would push myself really hard to get up early, to do the work uh, and and just knowing that 
at the end of the day, people, people are in need. And if you could make an impact, even if it's one person, right, then it's worth you giving up on that sleep. Yeah. It's amazing. And I just, um, it sounds like you did the book the right way in terms of posing it with the questions and um, the idea that you're giving confidence to other potential donors is just uh, amazing. And uh, thank you for doing it. I appreciate that. Thank you. It's yeah. really something that's a, a tremendous honor for me. Um, and to have the support of, of so many people, um, friends and family that, that kind of helped champion along the way um, just is what made it happen. You mentioned that you're focused on marriage and couples therapy now. What led you there? Yeah, so the, the detours continue, don't they? I, uh, um, as I was um, working in Yeshiva University for the last decade, um, you know, sort of on, in my spare time pursuing my, my social work degree and, and the PhD, uh, but the full-time you know, gig was really working um, at Yeshiva University doing community uh, engagement, um, community leadership development. And I would travel around the country meeting with different uh, communities and, and leaders, philanthropists, board members, and help them sort of restructure their, uh, their organizations and think about uh, efficiency. And, uh, and it was just incredibly rewarding. Um, loved working with people, again, being able to now draw off of my experiences in the rabbinate, learning about how to um, help a, a congregation and a community grow, um, and also being able to bring some of that social work into it in terms of thinking about uh, relationship building. And for me, really, the ultimate in relationship building had, had really um, come down to uh, really what happens at home, right? Being able to strengthen the, the core of the family unit. And I really just found myself interested in um, wanting to help families. And a lot of social workers would, you know, go into, into therapy and, you know, work with adolescents or children and seniors and a lot of different demographics that you can work. And for me, I just felt like um, I really value the idea of helping um, bring peace to to a, a couple that's struggling, that's maybe missing something. Like they just, they just need a paradigm shift or maybe they just need some tools. Um, and I started just started some trainings, and again, so there, there I go again with more education. Um, started some trainings, and I did, you know, uh, you know, level one of the Gottman training, and did level two, and then I did level three, and then I ultimately got certified. Uh, and you know, there are only a couple hundred people in the, in the world who who have that level of certification, and I, I may be the only one who's a, a rabbi as well. Um, it's every now and then I'll get people from around the country reaching out to me and say, you know, we're looking for someone who is, you know, Jewish who you know, has this level of certification. Uh, and it's just, it, it's wonderful to be able to bring, you know, who I am now into, um, into the therapy room and to be able to uh, just sit with couples, you know, and I have a, thank God, a very full workload and, you know, couples from, from all over and, and really diverse. So, you know, people that are Jewish, non-Jewish, um, you know, a whole spectrum of, of faiths and cultures and it's just such a pleasure. It's such a pleasure to be able to see people where they're starting off and maybe they, they're high conflict and they can't really talk to each other without yelling or maybe they're just sort of lonely in, in the marriage. Maybe they've had an affair. Maybe there's you know addiction or depression or anxiety and they're not sure how do we move forward, right? We're, we're, you know, we're so invested in each other and our relationship and our family and yet still we're stuck. And 
you know, you work with them and over the, the, the arc of that work, you suddenly start to see a shift. And on the other end of it, there's this incredible new relationship that's born. Um, and to be a part of that is, is something that is so special. And it does draw off of some of the rabbinic work that I would do also in terms of like sitting with people in their vulnerable moments. And I felt like that was a, a strength that I had, a passion of mine. Um, and now I'm able to- I can attest it. to it. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, and so that's something that we, um, you know, I, I've, again, I've grown from the, the work that I'm doing, the education, but also the couples that I work with. You know, it, it, it enriches my life and I, I feel blessed to be able to uh, help people every day, um, you know, improve their relationships. Uh, I'm certainly glad you're, you're in that role, certainly helping a lot of couples. Um, you mentioned earlier the Gottman method is a scientific-based method. Is it too too much to kind of give us a summary of it, or is oh, that gosh, doable? Happy to. Let me get okay. me on a roll here. So, you know, one of the things I'm, I love about um, this work, Dr. John Gottman, uh, who, who lives in the Seattle area, um, world-renowned for um, – being like the world's expert on relationships. And I was really drawn to his method because of the scientific aspect. So he himself has been a researcher and uh, spent 40 years as a researcher in a laboratory setting, just watching couples, bring couples into uh, sort of like a, it looks like an apartment and he would study them and watch their behaviors and see, you know, how they're interacting. And he would look at their their heart rate and their, you know, study their blood chemistry and their urine output and see what's happening physiologically and chemically and their behaviors. Fast forward after doing this for 40 years, he can now watch a couple have a three minute argument and predict with 94% accuracy if they're going to stay married or get divorced. Wow. That's and, incredible. And that's what it's all about. It's, it's now using science to be able to look for the correlation so that when couples are doing X, that's going to be a behavior that's correlated with divorce. So I want to identify it, stop it, kind of isolate. It. Okay, guys, what we're doing here, we need to swap that aspect out and teach them a healthier version of how to, let's say, communicate. And suddenly, once they are able to, to make that shift, so many of the fights and other issues that they have start to go away. And it just be able to you know use that science and that research, uh, it's just incredible. People are able to then um, remove the walls that we put up to protect ourselves when we get into fights and we, we kind of withdraw from our partners. And once you stop hurting each other, because I didn't know that that style of communication would be hurtful. I'm just talking the way I know how to talk. Once we change that, the walls come down. And then when the walls come down, people are more vulnerable and then they're able to talk and connect and uh, and really just be able to, to build um, – the, the best version of their relationship that they really wanted to build all, all along, but were really struggling to do so. Yeah. It sounds really interesting. I very much appreciate the scientific aspect of it. Um, and thank you for sharing. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, historically couples therapy would kind of go in circles a lot. Like it, it, here now I can say to my couples, like it has a beginning, a middle and an end to the process. Mm. So I'll get a lot of couples who come to me after, like after they've seen, you know, another therapist for a year, for two years. And it's like, you spent two years and, and you really haven't gotten past your issues. Like, okay, guys, it's time to take a scientific look and really just isolate it. I almost go in surgically with couples and say, okay, we just have to, you know, address this, this, and this. And that's the reason 
right? So looking at it scientifically isn't just a matter of saying, okay, talk nicely, don't fight, you know, be kind. Those are nice ideas, but if I was able to do that, we would have fixed our problems already. And so the science is just, it's been tested again and again and again, and it's just really, uh, really dependable. And, and that's what I love about it. It gives you something to, to not just have like the art of, of relationships, but the science as well, so that we, yeah. we know exactly how to, how to rebuild a relationship. We spoke some earlier about sort of the divide in our society in general, but more specifically, I wanted to ask you about the rise we've seen in anti-Semitism over the last few years, um, both in the U.S. as well as Europe and otherwise. Um, and, you know, it's statistically shown that these these hate crimes against Jews are increasing and it's scary, you know, especially coming, being holo- the ch- grandchildren of Holocaust survivors. Um, my son's school, uh, in the last couple of weeks, you know, a Jewish school had two bomb threats that they had to cancel school over, um, just for instance. And, you know, obviously in the wake of Uvalde, it's extra scary. Um, so just wanted to get your thoughts on where we are. It's terribly sad and it's terribly frightening. It, It really is. I... You know, again, I, like you, I grew up hearing stories about Kristallnacht, about, you know, what it means to have people just, you know, break into your home or your synagogue. And, uh, and those were just sort of stories that those were things that happened back in Eastern Europe in, in the 30s, in the 40s. It, it's not something that would happen today. Today we're, we're so much more woke and we're, we're sure. developed and things are so much. And yet to see, to see the rise, you know, in anti-Semitism, it's, it's to me, it's not only um, a heralding call of concern for the Jewish community, uh, but for society, right? Because as we talked before about social justice, any vulnerable population, any minority group, anyone that's, that's disadvantaged um, needs to have allies, needs to have um, a, a, a larger society that says, no, 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 it's not okay to see any group being being mistreated or targeted for any form of of hate crimes right um there there how many uh you know chinese americans have faced hate crimes just since covid um as if you know they were responsible um you know so we're seeing so many different aspects of um a very very uh, narrow way of thinking a very hateful way of thinking um and it's very concerning and Part of the answer to that needs to be um, people speaking up. So myself as a, as a member of the Jewish community, when I see a tragedy happening outside of the Jewish community, I'm going to stand up and say something because I want to make sure that we as a society are, are standing up for one another. Unfortunately, um, <clears throat> I don't think it represents the whole. I think you know there are always going to be a couple of... of uh, you know, rotten apples, a couple of people who, who ruin it for everybody else. And I think by and large, you know, the, the, the world are comprised of good people. And, and yet it's going to be those who instill fear and terror and hatred that steal a lot of the focus. Um, and so the more positive people, the more good people can stand up, the more we're able to, um, to kind of counterbalance some of, of what the message that's coming across when, um, you know, over the last couple of years, um, particularly right before COVID, so I had been um, responding to some of the mass 
shootings that were happening. So when the shooting happened in, in Parkland, so I, I was there, um, the, the synagogue shooting in Pittsburgh, um, I was there, the um, San Diego, the Poway uh, synagogue shooting that happened on the, the last day of Passover. So I flew out to all those communities and I was there doing um, crisis intervention work. And one of the things that I really, uh, so many moving things came out of those experiences, but just there to offer support, to help the community kind of regain its composure, to talk to hundreds of, of children, right, who are going to those schools, talk to the parents who are afraid to send their kids, to talk to the community leaders, the teachers who are, who are still living in, in a state of trauma and crisis, um, and just to kind of go in and help them, again, bringing both my rabbinic and my mental health training uh, to help with crisis intervention was really able to stabilize things for them. Um, and I feel very blessed to have had that opportunity to do it. But one of the things that I observed, I remember when I was in Pittsburgh, and this is you know within 24 hours of, of this horrific shooting at the, uh, the Tree of Life Synagogue, and I remember I had spent the afternoon at the outside the synagogue and you look around and it's just flowers everywhere candles that are burning cards that are written people coming from near and far from all faiths all walks of life and they're just standing together in silence and prayer and song and then from there i went that night back to my hotel and i'm standing in the lobby and i'm looking up at the the tv and of course they're talking about the the horrific shooting but the story that they were telling, you would see things like bloodshed and gunfire and gunmen and you know, graphic images. And it was just, I couldn't help try to like reconcile, wait a second, are they talking about the same place that I was just, the place I was just, that was a place of love and peace and healing and prayer and unity. And what their story telling, because that story doesn't really you know, get a lot of, uh, a lot of viewers. But to, to be able to instill fear and talk to people about this, you know, the rise in, 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 in anti-Semitism and how, you know, you better beware. And it, yeah, there is a lot to be concerned about. But if only we reported on, on the positive side as well. Um, you know, what, one of the, the, the memories that I have from there was um, I was just standing, uh, you know, just, just there just to offer support. And there's this gentleman, um, probably in his 60s, and he begins um, crying, sobbing. I don't know who he is, and I don't want to like go over and be weird about it, but I just stood next to him so that while he's crying, there's another person there. And I didn't know what to say. I don't know if he knew people or what the deal was. I just stood there. And after a few minutes, I hear he's sort of like sobbing deeper and deeper, and he's, he's starting to like gasp a little bit, like having trouble catching his breath because he's just, <gasps> and I was getting like a little bit worried. And I just put my hand on his back. And he looked at me with these big eyes because he was he actually couldn't breathe. He was so worked up. And I, I just reached out with my arms and I, I, I just held him and I just hugged him. And slowly he just started calming down. He started breathing deeper and deeper and deeper. And eventually he just caught his breath. And I held his hand and he just looked at me and he said, thank you so much. I, you know, I don't know what happened to me. I said, it's okay. I'm, I'm here with you. You're not alone. Like we're in this together. And he's a, a total stranger. And um, a few minutes, maybe a, a minute later, um, there was a tremendous police presence, as you can imagine. And this rather large, um, look like a, a SWAT officer, 
comes over to me and he looks down at me and goes, excuse me, son, can you please step over here? I got really nervous. <laughs> and he says, just follow me. And he walks me over to the side away from all the people. And he says, so I just want to let you know I was watching what just happened over there. And he said, I am the one who has the tactical training that when there's a hostage situation, I'm the guy they call. I'm the guy who is responsible to be able to um, neutralize a threat, to talk someone down who's in one place and to get them to another place. And it's with all the training that I have of dealing with people who are sort of stuck, he says, there's no way that I could have done what you just did. And he said, I just want to thank you. And I, I, said, and I said, okay, if I give you a hug, right? and with all his gear and everything, I reached up and I just gave him a hug. And, and it was such the, a powerful connection of, of human connection of here we are, like just people all from different worlds. And I felt like I don't know what I'm doing. Again, just putting one foot in front of the other. You see a person who's hurting. What can you do to help them out? And then to know that, again, the ripples, as you mentioned before, that here he was watching and I had no idea and I, I thought I was in trouble. And here he was expressing his gratitude, right? So you never know. You, you just try to do the best you can with, yeah. with what is right at the time and hopefully you can make a positive impact. Yeah. And, and you made a great point in that, you know, unfortunately this hate and divisiveness often generates views that the media is looking for and that's the focus, but there's, certainly a lot of good for all the hate in the, the world and um, a lot of good that, that comes out of a lot of these horrible, horrible incidents. Yeah. Yeah. And it, and that's what, you know, I love the, the work that you're doing and you know, people are the answer, right. To be able to focus on, on the positive side of humanity, right. Because there's always the, the exactly. news is, is just full of it and all the, the hashtags and <laughs> whatever's out there. It's just, yeah. Uh, Unfortunately, it's the negativity that really that really gets people excited, and and that's gonna you know sell more ads. But um, it's it's not as glamorous to focus on the positivity. But that's really what the world needs. Agreed. Um, you you mentioned earlier that you became a rabbi pretty young. You know, you moved to Des Moines. Um, when was sort of the first time you remember seeing how much your role? would be able to affect change and affect individuals' lives? Mm. So I would say that during our, our time in Iowa, again, we, we were young, right? We were like yo the youngest in the whole community, right? So everyone we were ministering to was so much older than us. And we had um, people join us in our home for, let's say, a Shabbat dinner and, you know, we would be there to influence them because of course we're the educators and yet they would influence us because they have this beautiful life experience that we could learn from. And, and it became a very uh, reciprocal, mutual type of a relationship with, with the members of the community. But at such a young age, um, one of the things that really struck me was the day a, um, a, a young man just graduated high school walks in, our, in the door of the synagogue, uh, you know, name is John, and he grew up in a small town, you know, in the middle of nowhere, Iowa. And he says, I'm interested in the Jewish faith. And I said, that's nice. And he said, I, I want to be a Jew. I said, okay, that's, that's nice. You know, you talk about a lot of the, the um, sacrifices and restrictions, you know, such as not having kosher restaurants. Like, dude, you can go to any restaurant you want and eat. I can't. Do you really want to give that up? 
And, you know, we said, if you're really interested, we'd love to, you know, give you a taste of it. And why don't you get to know what it's like and see if, if, uh, if it's something that speaks to you. So he took me up on that and he came every day, not just every week, every day. And he'd come to services and come to classes. And, you know, a few months later, there was a, a, a young lady who also kind of came with the same story, right? She grew up going to church and, you know, Story City, Iowa. And same thing, I'm interested. Okay. Uh, and then there was a, a third person, right? And during the short time that we were there, you know, we, we watched these people who became part of our family and they're coming from such a different background. To make a long story short, each of those three people went through their own journey to convert to Judaism. Each of those three people today live in Israel and have, are each, they've each gotten married. They each have children who walk around with a yarmulke and go to synagogue. And it's, it's unbelievable to realize, like, what did I know at the time? What was I doing? I was just inviting them to, hey, come, come to our house, learn the songs, learn the prayers, have a nice time. We'll feed you a meal. We'll teach you. And to just, it's almost like you're um, like a navigator. You're just giving direction. Like, I'm not the one driving it. This is their life. And if I can just give them a little, here's a book, you know, here's a CD, here's an article, here's something. And to support people on their journey and step back and realize, like, holy cow, they were on a journey to literally transform their lives. And I was able to play a small role in kind of helping them. Uh, that, that to me is one of the most eye-opening and, and humbling things. That's must be really rewarding to look back on and see yeah. where they are now. Um, and for that to happen in Iowa of all places is interesting. Right, right. And one day you'll go to Israel and you'll bump into some guy and you have no idea that that person started off, yeah. you know, or you'll meet his, his kids with the, you know, the black hat and you'd be like, wait a second, your father, your mother, like, yeah, like these are proud members of the Jewish faith who are so involved in their communities and doing wonderful work. And like, yes, they started off in the middle of nowhere, Iowa, small little podunk town. And yet, um, you know, again, they bring themselves, their humanity and, and the warmth. And, um, you know, there's, there's just, there's, there's a gem in every person. And uh, that, that for me was really eye-opening because again, I was so young and I didn't know, you know, about life and where would, where would this journey take them? I have no idea. But in this moment, I can be here with you. And sure enough that, you know, see where they went is incredible. So that's a, an experience from your working life, you know, that showed the impact you could create. Do you recall anything from your childhood an, an experience where you just really saw firsthand the importance of giving back? Yes. So one of the, the um, primary influences in my life growing up, and I didn't know this until already I was older, until I was, until I was married, I didn't appreciate the impact that my grandfather had on me. I just thought everyone had a grandfather like this. We called him Gramps. He was very um, aloof, silly. Uh, we'd sit at a family meal together on, on Shabbat on Saturday. And halfway through the meal, he'd say, all right, I got to go. And we're like, Gramps, where, where are you going? We're in the middle of eating. And he'd say, well, I'm going to the nursing home. And the nursing home was about a three-mile walk. And he would just start walking. And he would go and spend the afternoon in the nursing home and, and he would, he had a beautiful voice. He would sing and he would dance and he would, as he, as he said, I, I would flirt with the old ladies. 
<laughs> and put a smile on their face. And then he would walk three miles back. And I just thought that that was normal. And even, you know, a few months before he passed away, um, I remember asking him, Grams, you know, what are you up to? That he'd, he'd moved to Florida. So what are you up to? He goes, oh, I'm, I'm helping out uh, at the, um, the JCC, at the, uh, the, the kosher, like the, the soup kitchen. And uh, I'm feeding the old people. <laughs> and it was just a constant life of saying, how can I volunteer my time in the service of other people? And I didn't appreciate it at the time. I just thought that that was what everyone does. And it was only when I got older, I really started to appreciate one of the things that my grandfather is, if you said to him, hey, Gramps, that's a nice, nice tie you're wearing. He would loosen it, take it off and hand it to you and say, here you go. Say, what are you doing? He goes, here, you, I want you to enjoy it. Like he got more pleasure out of giving it than he would about wearing it. And how often we get a compliment. We're like, hey, thanks. I'm glad you like my tie. And it's like, it's my favorite tie. I don't want to part with it. And for him, it was just a pleasure to just always be giving. And again, we talk about those seeds that get planted. That was a seed yeah. that was planted in me. And years later, it just sort of, it just blossomed. And I, I never knew. I never knew if that was really um, what was beneath it. And my, and my parents also, right, would um, you know, kind of live live that life of, of being in the service of other people. And so that yeah. it just, it really, my siblings, um, it, it just, I was very blessed to, to have a lot of positive influences. Well, what an incredible example that your grandfather and your family set, and certainly it's taken root in your life. Thank you. Throughout this time, you know, through our discussions, it's really clear that your wife, Hannah, was uh, a huge sort of pillar for you along the way, working together to build what you guys have built and your family. Um, was there anyone else in particular that along the way you thought of as a mentor or a thought partner? I would say that that Hannah really um, has been my partner. You know, every you know to say, "Hey, let's move to Iowa," and she was like, "Cool, let's do it." You know, or "Hey, I want to give a kidney," and she's like, "All right." You know, I, I mean, I I've been extremely blessed uh, to to have to have a partner like that. And of course, there are many um, many teachers, you know, rabbis, friends, colleagues that along the way have. Uh, have been there to inspire me, to to guide me, to really you know, hold me through difficult times where I was going through my own struggles. Um, but I, I would I would really tip my hat off to Hannah as uh, as being my uh, my number one. Yeah, I love that. Um, this is the point at which, if you'd like, you can ask me a question. So, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you a question, but uh, introduce it with a story. And it's a story that I've never shared before. Um, a story about your father. Oh, I don't, wow. I don't okay. think anybody knows this story. Um, but I, I, when I moved to Charleston, um, your father, Jerry of blessed memory, was just this larger-than-life figure and such a um, a visionary and and a, a captain of industry and and an incredible human being. You know, profoundly humble and yet incredibly accomplished, and and just the the leader of leaders. And I, as a I think I was twenty six when I first came to Charleston, was quite intimidated, uh, being in his presence. And I, I would try to get to know you know him and your family, as well as the rest of the community. And 
Uh, but it was sort of it was sort of scary, overwhelming to be in the, the presence of someone so incredible and, and so uh, well known and accomplished. And uh, from time to time, he would call me with a with a question or, or ask me, you know, where can I find a, a specific, you know, verse? And I'm like, yeah, I don't know, I got to Google it because <laughs> I don't know it all off the top of my head. Um, and you know, towards the end of his life, when when he was sick, and it was it was something that was very um, private, very personal. And um, he and your mom had, had sort of brought me to the to the inner circle to support them during that time. And I remember at one point, um, it was really towards the end when your dad was was laying in bed and your mom, I, I came to visit, your mom took me upstairs and, and we were just sitting on, on his bed with him. And we were talking, talking about life talking about um, having a purpose, about a legacy, about making the world better, um, trying to reconcile you know, things that we don't understand, why, why bad things happen to good people and making peace with that. And I remember feeling so out of my element because I don't have answers. I can just be with you in, in your questions, in your pain, in your tears. And I remember uh, and again, this is an example of where things really resonated and, and, and I extracted things that I take with me in my life. But I remember this moment where your dad was holding a, a toothpick. You know, people sometimes they play with toothpick, put in their teeth, they're chatting. And at a certain point he was, you know, kind of like picking at his tooth. And your mom, being a woman of extreme class and grace, said to him, Jerry, take, take that out of your mouth. You know, you're talking to the rabbi. <laughs> you know, you can do that later. And he looked at her and his eyes welled up with tears and he broke down crying. And he said, later, he said, later, he said, I don't have time. And he said, every minute is precious. And that's something that I took with me, that I carry of your father's legacy in my heart of really trying to maximize every minute. And the things he accomplished in his tragically short life were, were more than what a thousand people would accomplish in a thousand lifetimes, right? And it was really his, that, that passion to really maximize his impact and what he could do. Um, and I think that that's part of the legacy. I think that's part of what, what drives you. And, and I see that in you. I see that in your siblings. Um, it's something very special in the, the Zucker family of really, really not just, like you guys don't just rest on your laurels and say, okay, I've done enough. And so I, I would like to ask you a little bit about the, um, the, the, the legacy that you've taken from your father, the inspiration from your mother. Um, in what way does that drive you? In what way does that compel you in the work that you're doing? Yeah. Well, thank you so much for, for sharing that story. I mean, you know, you're, you're one of the people that, that knew my dad very well and there weren't a ton of them. So, um, it's extra special to hear about him from you. And um, my, I mean, every day I'm trying to sort of do justice to all of the work and the effort that my parents put in to give me the opportunities that I had and, you know, and our, my grandparents as well, surviving, like we talked about earlier, doing justice to that. And um, I think similarly 
in some ways to you with your grandfather and like not knowing what, you know, what was normal, what wasn't like, I'm looking back, I'm just so fortunate that my parents were not only great parents and there for us, but they really integrated us into the impact work they were trying to do as well as the business work. You know, they, they gave us a front row seat. They didn't treat us like our opinion didn't matter because we were kids. Um, you know, they let us have a say and, um, they made us want to do what we can to help other people every day that we can. And I'm so thankful for that. You know, it's certainly, and it's not just for other people either. It makes you feel good too, helping people. And, um, it's, it's a big legacy to do justice to. And, um, you know, every day I just try to kind of do my own version of it, um, and make, make the impact that I can. So, um, I mean, my mom obviously is still, still going at a tremendous pace and, um, you know, hopefully we'll continue to do so. And so she is still there setting the example. And, um, I try to think back on the lessons that they taught and try to get some perspective on them that I didn't have when I was a kid. And, uh, certainly am using them to sort of develop my brain around parenting and, um, I'll continue to lean on them every day. Wow. Thank you. Yeah. And, and if I could follow up with that, I don't have a lot of follow, yeah. follow up question. Um, it, in what way does, uh, let's say Tikkun Olam, right? Which is really the, the, the I, it embodies the legacy. Um, in what way does that drive or impact the work that you do? I mean, yeah, I've talked about Tikkun Olam quite a bit on, on this show. And certainly when I was starting it, you know, I take Tikkun Olam and, you know, sort of being my dad's mantra, repair the world, like as my everyday as well, you know, the bottom line of things that I do, whether it's, you know, trying to make a business sustainable so that its profits can go toward Tikkun Olam or, whether it's helping nonprofit organizations, um, whether it's helping some random stranger that I meet, like, like you were saying, um, I try and certainly am nowhere near perfect, but just try to make every action that I can have positive impact on, on the world. And that all stems from, you know, the messages that he was pushing. Amazing. Amazing. Again, that's for me pure inspiration. So I'm, I'm holding that and I'm taking that with me. So thank you. Yeah. Well, I appreciate it. It's, it's always, it's nice to talk about my, my dad and my parents. So I appreciate that. And, um, if everything ended tomorrow, what are you most proud of? Mm, That'd be my children. Yeah. My children are my, uh, are my inspiration. And I think when, when the kids are young, it's easy to kind of like, it's like you're kind of running like a, a, a Disney version of, of life and just trying to like keep them entertained and keep them busy and playing a lot of defense. And then they start getting older and you realize, oh crud, they're allowed to make their own decisions and they have their own phones and they can drive. And it's like, yikes, that's a really yeah. scary thing. And the, the only thing you have is your trust in them to know that they're going to hopefully make good decisions and they'll make some bad ones along the way too. That's okay. Um, but to know that they are loved unconditionally so that no matter where they go in life, that they can always come back home. 
right? And that's the product of really investing in the relationship. And kids are going to make mistakes and they'll they'll mess up and they'll you know pass some tests and fail some tests and get under your skin. But at the end of the day, um, for them to just know how much they're loved is going to be the the beacon that always brings them home. And so I, I look at them and I look at the growth they've helped me achieve, which I'm continuing every day to grow because of them. And uh, and I'm grateful. I'm proud of them. I'm, I'm in awe in so many ways of the the things that you know each each of them and again all four of them in in different ways uh, that they each accomplish. And so I'm, I feel extremely um, blessed and and incredibly grateful. Yeah. Um, that's that's awesome, and I I'm sure it's going to continue to be exciting and fascinating and just such an experience to see them grow and. Um, wishing you guys the best on that journey. Thank you. Take yeah. all the all the good wishes we can get. So my last major question is one that I'm asking every guest. If you could snap your fingers and fix one thing in the world, what would it be and how do you think that change would reverberate? So it, it's a tough question because I, I'm passionate about so many issues. Like, oh, I'd want to change. You don't think getting more kidneys to people who need them. And I'd, I'd want to help marriages. And um, there's so many causes that I'm passionate about. Um, but as as a dad who has experienced this uh, firsthand, I would say that the the issue that's foremost on my, on my mind and in my heart is um, around adolescent mental health. Mm-hmm. To be able to look today at, you know, we see the trends of really rising numbers of anxiety. And, you know, when you put a smartphone in every kid's hand, um, maybe they forget how to be alone with themselves, with their thoughts, because we're always busy. And so we, we forget how to cope. And so anxiety goes up, depression rates go up. Um, and children themselves aren't necessarily prepared for that. Parents don't necessarily know how they are supposed to support their child who's struggling. Um, you know, is it the teacher's fault? Is it the school's fault? And is it the kid's fault? And and maybe it's nobody's fault. Maybe it's just we. this child needs to be loved in a way that is not intuitive. And for me to snap my fingers, I would love to be able to bring that education, that awareness, and really the support because for parents, and, and that's something we've really been through ourselves, seeing children struggle, you're, you're helpless, you're powerless, and you, you want to rescue and protect your children and they're going to struggle. How do you know what's right and wrong? Do you feel alone? Do you feel like there are people who get it? And I'd, I'd love to just help advance that in the world to be able to bring parents together and say, you are not alone. Right? We've had to, um, with, with one of our children, send them for two years to a, a therapeutic boarding school, which was just the most difficult thing we've ever had to do in our lives. And doing that saved the life of our child. And it was, it was so difficult and yet the best thing we ever did. And to be able to think about how many other parents are in that situation who need higher levels of care um, and, and maybe preventatively could you know figure out how to not get to that point. And there just aren't enough measures in place right now to offer that support. Uh, and so I would just love to be able to see a, a more healed version or more repaired version of the world when it comes to adolescent mental health. Yeah. That's a unique answer relative to the ones that we've gotten, but such such an impactful one and that could change the human race, honestly, given where we are right now. And um, I hope that we're able to continually bring more attention to those needs. 
Thank you. Thank you. And I, and I appreciate that because it is something that is easily uh, overlooked, right? There, there are many um, more sexy topics that, you know, society will want to tackle. And, um, and at the end of the day, you know, mental health is just being at peace in your own skin and, and families being able to know how to support each other during difficult times. You know, that's where the, where the rubber meets the road. Like if you can get through all of that and survive childhood and adolescence and then you can get out into the world and make all the impact, right? But we got to figure out how to make sure to support people in getting to that point. Yeah. So I'm sure that the listeners are are moved and inspired as I am from our conversation. Uh, How can people best support you and your impact? Um, Certainly I'll link to your book, Kidney Dota's Journey. Um, How else? Uh, so if people want to you know, go to my website, asitner.com, A-S-Y-T-N-E-R.com, I'm certainly happy to, to be in touch and, and hear from people, uh, however I can be helpful and supportive. Uh, and uh, I have a, a second book that came out during COVID uh, that also is a, could be a great resource. It's a, a relationship workbook um, and specifically uh, written, it's called The Ultimate Relationship Workbook for Couples. It's available also on Amazon. Uh, but the idea is to empower, right? That not every couple has to go running to therapy and, and spend that time and money to do that. But so often you can, you know, use the strengths that you have as a couple and uh, and try to, you know, improve your own issues, right? Trust each other that you can. So that was the, uh, the, the impetus behind that book to try to, again, give others the, the tools that they can um, do those things on their own. Um, and and I really, I just ask for people to just think about the, the power of, uh, of paying it forward, right? Of just being able to bring a smile and act of kindness to a person. I often say you do not have to separate a uh, vital organ of your body to be able to make an impact on another person. Yes, I did an extreme version of kindness. It doesn't all have to be extreme, right? Just doing something simple and small and a, a little bit every day uh, is really what's going to make a huge impact. To bring a smile to another person's face can literally change literally change their life. Uh, and so I just invite everyone to just join me in that mission of just bringing more, more kindness and positivity and love to other people. Yeah. Very well said. And thank you so much for your time and for joining me. It's been great catching up and being able to share your wisdom uh, with the listeners. So um, thank you. Thank you, Jeffrey. An absolute honor and a pleasure. And you keep doing what you're doing and going strong. Thanks for listening to this episode of People Are The Answer. To find out more, go to peoplearetheanswer.com.